Chapter 15 Overcoming Habitual Patterns Arrogance comes from lack of gentleness, as we have discussed already. But beyond that, lack of gentleness comes from relying on habitual patterns of behavior. So habitual patterns are also an obstacle to invoking drala. By clinging to habitual behavior, we are cutting ourselves off from the warrior's world. Habitual patterns are almost like reflexes. When we are shocked, we panic. And when we are attacked, we become defensive. On a more subtle level, we use habitual patterns to hide our self-consciousness. When we feel inadequate, we employ habitual responses to patch up our self-image. We invent excuses to shield our inadequacies from other people. Our standard emotional responses are often reflections of habitual patterns as our mental fatigue, restlessness, irritation over something we don't like, and many of our desires. We use our habitual patterns to seal ourselves off and to build ourselves up. The Japanese have an interesting term, toranoko, which literally means tiger cub. It is a pejorative term. When you call someone a toranoko, you mean that he is a paper tiger, someone who appears brave but is actually a coward. That is the description of clinging to habitual patterns. You may make feeble attempts to expose your cowardice. Using eloquent language, you may make a confession, saying, I know I'm not all that fearless, but even your confession is still an expression of Toranoko, a fat tiger cub who is afraid of his own shadow, afraid to jump and play with the other cubs. The Tibetan word for animal is tudro. Tu means hunched, and dro means walking. Tudros are four-legged animals who walk hunched over. Their most sensitive sense organs are their nostrils, which they use to smell their way through the world. That is a precise description of habitual behavior, which is a manifestation of animal instinct. Habitual patterns allow you to look no further than three steps ahead of you. You are always looking at the ground, and you never look up at the bright blue sky or the mountain peaks. You fail to smile and rejoice at the mist rising off the glaciers. In fact, anything above your shoulder level is embarrassing. No possibility of head and shoulders has ever occurred in that realm. You may have been instructed in how to experience head and shoulders and how to raise yourself up to see the great eastern sun. But still, if you don't overcome habitual patterns, you could remain a tudro who hunches over and walks on four feet. When you follow your habitual patterns, you never look to the right or to the left. You fail to see the brightness of colors, and you never appreciate the breeze coming in the window. You want to close the window right away because fresh air is a nuisance. When a Tudro-type person who is filled with habitual patterns looks at a warrior, he might feel that the warrior has a very tedious existence. How in the name of heaven and earth can the warrior be so upright and awake? A Tudro, a four-legged, hunched, unhead-and-shouldered person, may feel very sorry for the warrior, because the warrior has to stand on two feet and maintain head and shoulders. Quite possibly, such a sympathizer might make a gift of a chair to the warrior, thinking that a chair would make the warrior happy. Then the warrior wouldn't have to maintain his head and shoulders. 
he could at least slouch once in a while and put his feet on the coffee table. But a warrior never needs to take time off. Trying to relax by slouching or indulging in habitual patterns only produces schizophrenia. You are such a nice boss and such a good, humorous person at the office, but the minute you come home, you forget everything. You turn on your television, you beat your wife, and you send your children to their rooms, telling them you need peace and quiet. One wonders what kind of peace and quiet such a person is looking for. It seems, rather, that he is looking for pain and a hellish life, so you can't be a warrior in the office and a tudro at home. The process of freeing yourself from arrogance and cutting off your habitual tendencies is a very drastic measure, but it is necessary in order to help others in this world. You should take pride in yourself and uplift yourself. You should regard yourself as an honest and genuine warrior. The former Secretary General of the United Nations, U Thant of Burma, exemplified how to be a warrior and help others without arrogance. He was highly educated and thoroughly soaked in the practice of meditation. He conducted the affairs of the United Nations with dignity, and he was so soft and gentle. Therefore, people felt in awe of him. They felt his power. They admired what he said and the decisions he made. He was one of the great statesmen of the 20th century and a great example of someone who has overcome habitual patterns. Habitual patterns are dangerous and destructive. They prevent you from seeing the great eastern sun. When habitual patterns constantly operate, you can't raise up your head and shoulders at all. You are down there, looking down, looking for this and that. You are more concerned with the flies sitting on your cup than the great sun that is coming up. You have forgotten about uplifted and open vision and about seeing the great eastern sun directly. You begin to dissolve yourself and involve yourself in a subhuman or even subanimal realm. You are not willing to take part in any immediate delight. You are not willing to relate with the least edge of pain or even discomfort in order to see the great eastern sun. When you were very young, three years old, you didn't want to escape reality, particularly, because you were so interested in how things were done. You used to ask your father and mother all sorts of questions. Why is this so, Mommy? Why is this so, Daddy? Why do we do this? Why don't we do that? But that innocent inquisitiveness has been forgotten, lost. Therefore, you have to reignite it. Entering the cocoon of Tudro behavior happens after that initial inquisitiveness. Once there was tremendous inquisitiveness, and then you thought that you were being mistreated by your world, so you jumped into your cocoon and decided to sleep. Uplifting your head and shoulders may sometimes give you back pains or a strained neck. But extending yourself, uplifting yourself, is necessary. We are not talking about philosophy, but we are talking about how on earth, how in the name of heaven and earth, we can actually become decent human beings without trying to entertain ourselves from here to the next corner. The constant search for immediate entertainment is a big problem. What can I do next? How can I save myself from boredom? I don't want to see that bright world at all. As we sew our fabric with a needle and thread, we think, 
Is there another way that I can make these stitches? Is there any way that I can avoid having to make a straight journey? The journey we are making is demanding, but there is no way of avoiding it. By stopping habitual patterns, we can appreciate the real world on the spot. We can appreciate the bright, beautiful, fantastic world around us. We don't have to feel all that resentful or embarrassed. If we don't negate our habitual patterns, we can never fully appreciate the world. But once we overcome habitual patterns, the vividness of the Drala principle, the magic, will descend, and we will begin to be individual masters of our world. Chapter 16 Sacred World Arrogance and habitual patterns, as we discussed in the last two chapters, are obstacles to experiencing Drala. In order to discover magic in the world, we have to overcome the individual neurosis and self centered attitudes that prevent us from experiencing greater vision beyond ourselves. By obscuring our vision, they also prevent us from uplifting ourselves. So that we can extend ourselves to help others. Some people feel that the world's problems are so pressing that social and political action should take precedence over individual development. They may feel that they should sacrifice their own needs completely in order to work for a larger cause. In its extreme form, this kind of thinking justifies individual neurosis and aggression as purely a product of a troubled society. So that people feel they can hold on to their neurosis and even use their aggression to try to effect change. According to the Shambhala teachings, however, we have to recognize that our individual experience of sanity is inherently linked to our vision for a good human society. So we have to take things one step at a time. If we try to solve society's problems without overcoming the confusion and aggression in our own state of mind, then our efforts will only contribute to the basic problems instead of solving them. That is why the individual journey of warriorship must be undertaken before we can address the larger issue of how to help this world. Still, it would be extremely unfortunate if Shambhala vision were taken as purely another attempt. To build ourselves up while ignoring our responsibilities to others. The point of warriorship is to become a gentle and tamed human being who can make a genuine contribution to this world. The warrior's journey is based on discovering what is intrinsically good about human existence and how to share that basic nature of goodness with others. There is a natural order and harmony to this world which we can discover. But we cannot just study that order scientifically or measure it mathematically. We have to feel it in our bones, in our hearts, in our minds. If we are thoroughly trained in the disciplines of warriorship, then by invoking the Drala principle, we can reawaken that intimate connection to reality. That provides the ground to work with others in a genuine and gentle fashion. When you invoke Drala, You begin to experience basic goodness reflected everywhere, in yourself, in others, and in the entire world. You are not being blind to the setting sun or degraded aspects of existence. In fact, you see them very precisely because you are so alert. But you also see that every aspect of life 
has the potential of being upgraded, that there is the potential for sacredness in every situation. So you begin to view the universe as a sacred world. The sacred world is that which exists spontaneously, naturally, in the phenomenal world. When you have gold, that gold can be formed into different shapes, both beautiful and grotesque, but it still remains 24-karat gold. A diamond may be worn by the most degraded person, but it still remains a diamond. Similarly, the idea of sacred world is that although you see the confusion and problems that fill the world, you also see that phenomenal existence is constantly being influenced by the vision of the Great Eastern Sun. In fact, we could say that it takes on the qualities of the Great Eastern Sun. The sacred world is great because of its primordial quality. That is, sacredness goes back and back through history to prehistory to before history, before thought, before mind had ever thought of anything at all. So experiencing the greatness of the sacred world is recognizing the existence of that vast and primordial wisdom which is reflected throughout phenomena. This wisdom is old and young at the same time, and it is never tarnished or diminished by the relative problems in the world. The sacred world is connected with East because there are always possibilities of vision in this world. East represents the dawn of wakefulness, the horizon of human consciousness, where vision is constantly arising. Wherever you are, when you open your eyes, you always look ahead to the East. You always have possibilities of wakeful vision, even in the most degraded or confused situations. Finally, the sacred world is lit by the sun, which is the principle of never-ending brilliance and radiance. The sun is also connected with seeing self-existing possibilities of virtue and richness in the world. Normally, when you see a brilliant light, that light comes from a finite source of energy. The brightness of a candle depends on how much wax surrounds it and the thickness of the wick. The brightness of a light bulb depends on the electric current running through it. But the great eastern sun is eternally blazing. It has no need of fuel. There actually is greater luminosity that occurs without fuel, without even a pilot light. Seeing the sacred world is witnessing that greater vision, which is there all the time. The experience of sacred world begins to show you how you are woven together with the richness and brilliance of the phenomenal world. You are a natural part of that world, and you begin to see possibilities of natural hierarchy or natural order, which could provide the model for how to conduct your life. Ordinarily, hierarchy is regarded in the negative sense as a ladder or a vertical power structure with power concentrated at the top. If you are on the bottom rungs of that ladder, then you feel oppressed by what is above you and you try to abolish it, or you try to climb higher on the ladder. But for the warrior, discovering hierarchy is seeing the great eastern sun reflected everywhere in everything. You see possibilities of order in the world that are not based on struggle and aggression. In other words, you perceive a way to be in harmony with the phenomenal world that is neither static nor repressive. So the understanding of hierarchy manifests as a sense of natural decorum or knowing how to behave. That is, 
You see how to be naturally in this world, because you experience dignity and elegance that do not have to be cultivated. The warrior's decorum is this natural togetherness and calm, which come from a feeling of being in harmony with yourself and with the environment. You don't have to try to fit yourself into situations, but situations fit naturally. When you achieve this level of decorum, then you can abandon the final vestiges of the giant backpack of habitual patterns that you've been carrying for so long to protect yourself from nature. You can appreciate nature's own qualities, and you see that you do not need your bag of ego-centered tricks. You realize that you can live with nature as it is and as you are. You feel a sense of ease or looseness. You feel at home in your world. In that way, the invocation of the Drala principle allows us to live in harmony with the elemental quality of reality. The modern approach often seems to be one of trying to conquer the elements. There is central heating to conquer winter's cold, and air conditioning to conquer summer's heat. When there is drought or flooding or a hurricane, it is seen as a battle with the elements, as an uncomfortable reminder of their strength. The warrior's approach is that rather than trying to overcome the raw elements of existence, one should respect their power and their order as a guide to human conduct. In the ancient philosophies of both China and Japan, the three principles of heaven, earth, and man expressed this view of how human life and society could be integrated with the order of the natural world. These principles are based on an ancient understanding of natural hierarchy. I have found that in presenting the discipline of warriorship, the principles of heaven, earth, and man are very helpful. In describing how the warrior should take his seat in the sacred world, although politically and socially our values are quite different from those of imperial China and Japan, it is still possible to appreciate the basic wisdom contained in these principles of natural order. Heaven, earth, and man can be seen literally as the sky above, the earth below, and human beings standing or sitting between the two. Unfortunately, the use of man here rather than human being may have a limiting connotation for some readers. By man, in this case, we simply mean anthropomorphic existence, human existence, not man as opposed to woman. Traditionally, heaven is the realm of the gods, the most sacred space. So, symbolically, the principle of heaven represents any lofty ideal or experience of vastness and sacredness. The grandeur and vision of heaven are what inspire human greatness and creativity. Earth, on the other hand, symbolizes practicality and receptivity. It is the ground that supports and promotes life. Earth may seem solid and stubborn, but earth can be penetrated and worked on. Earth can be cultivated. The proper relationship between heaven and earth is what makes the earth principle pliable. You might think of the space of heaven as very dry and conceptual, but warmth and love also come from heaven. Heaven is the source of the rain that falls on the earth, so heaven has a sympathetic connection with earth. When that connection is made, then the earth begins to yield. It becomes gentle and soft and pliable. 
so that greenery can grow on it and man can cultivate it. Then there is the man, or human, principle, which is connected with simplicity or living in harmony with heaven and earth. When human beings combine the freedom of heaven with the practicality of earth, they can live in a good human society with one another. Traditionally, it is said that when human beings live in harmony with the principles of heaven and earth, then the four seasons and the elements of the world will also work together harmoniously. Then there is no fear, and human beings begin to join in, as they deserve, in living in this world. They have heaven above and earth below, and they appreciate the trees and the greenery and so on. They begin to appreciate all this. But if human beings violate their connection or lose their trust in heaven and earth, then there will be social chaos and natural disasters. In Chinese, the character for the ruler or king is a vertical line joining three horizontal lines, which represent heaven, earth, and man. This means that the king has the power to join heaven and earth in a good human society. Traditionally, if there was plenty of rainfall and crops and vegetation flourished, then this indicated that the king was genuine, that he truly joined heaven and earth. But when there was drought and starvation or natural catastrophes, such as flooding and earthquakes, then the power of the king was in doubt. The idea that harmony in nature is linked to harmony in human affairs is not purely an Eastern concept. For example, there are many stories in the Bible, such as the story of King David, that portray the conflict between heaven and earth and the doubt that it raises about the king. If we apply the perspective of heaven, earth, and man to the situation in the world today, we begin to see that there is a connection between the societal and the natural or environmental problems that we are facing. When human beings lose their connection to nature, to heaven and earth, then they do not know how to nurture their environment or how to rule their world, which is saying the same thing. Human beings destroy their ecology at the same time that they destroy one another. From that perspective, healing our society goes hand in hand with healing our personal elemental connection with the phenomenal world. When human beings have no sense of living with a wide open sky above and a lush green earth below, then it becomes very difficult for them to expand their vision. When we feel that heaven is an iron lid and that earth is a parched desert, then we want to hide away rather than extending ourselves to help others. Shambhala vision does not reject technology or simplistically advocate going back to nature. But within the world that we live in, there is room to relax and appreciate ourselves and our heaven and our earth. We can afford to love ourselves, and we can afford to raise our head and shoulders to see the bright sun shining in the sky. The challenge of warriorship is to live fully in the world as it is, and to find within this world, with all its paradoxes, the essence of nowness. If we open our eyes, if we open our minds, if we open our hearts, we will find that this world is a magical place. It is not magical because it tricks us or changes unexpectedly into something else, but it is magical because it can be so vividly 
so brilliantly. However, the discovery of that magic can happen only when we transcend our embarrassment about being alive, when we have the bravery to proclaim the goodness and dignity of human life without either hesitation or arrogance. Then magic, or drala, can descend onto our existence. The world is filled with power and wisdom, which we can have, so to speak. In some sense, we have them already. By invoking the drala principle, we have possibilities of experiencing the sacred world, a world which has self-existing richness and brilliance, and beyond that, possibilities of natural hierarchy, natural order. That order includes all the aspects of life, including those that are ugly and bitter and sad, but even those qualities are part of the rich fabric of existence that can be woven into our being. In fact, we are woven already into that fabric, whether we like it or not. Recognizing that link is both powerful and auspicious. It allows us to stop complaining about and fighting with our world. Instead, we can begin to celebrate and promote the sacredness of the world. By following the way of the warrior, it is possible to expand our vision and give fearlessly to others. In that way, we have possibilities of effecting fundamental change. We cannot change the way the world is, but by opening ourselves to the world as it is, we may find that gentleness, decency, and bravery are available, not only to us, but to all human beings. Chapter 17 Natural Hierarchy The principles of heaven, earth, and man that were discussed in the last chapter are one way of describing natural hierarchy. They are a way of viewing the order of the cosmic world, the greater world of which all human beings are a part. In this chapter, I would like to present another way of seeing this order, which is part of the Shambhala wisdom of my native country of Tibet. This view of the world is also divided into three parts, which are called La, Nian, and Lu. These three principles are not in conflict with the principles of heaven, earth, and man, but as you will see, they are a slightly different perspective. La, Nian, and Lu are more rooted in the laws of the earth, although they acknowledge the command of heaven and the place of human beings. La, Nian, and Lu describe the protocol and the decorum of the earth itself, and they show how human beings can weave themselves into that texture of basic reality. So the application of the La, Nian, and Lu principles is actually a further way to invoke the power of Drala, or elemental magic. La literally means divine or God, but in this case, La refers to the highest points on earth rather than a celestial realm. The realm of La is the peaks of snow mountains where glaciers and bare rock are found. La is the highest point, the point that catches the light of the rising sun first of all. It is the places on earth that reach into the heavens above, into the clouds, so La is as close to the heavens as the earth can reach. Psychologically, La represents the first wakefulness. 
It is the experience of tremendous freshness and freedom from pollution in our state of mind. La is what reflects the great eastern sun for the first time in your being, and it is also the sense of shining out, projecting tremendous goodness. In the body, la is the head, especially the eyes and forehead, so it represents physical upliftedness and projecting out as well. Then there is nian, which literally means friend. Nian begins with the great shoulders of the mountains and includes forests, jungles, and plains. A mountain peak is la, but the dignified shoulders of the mountain are nian. In the Japanese samurai tradition, the large, starched shoulders on the warrior's uniforms represent nian principle, and in the Western military tradition, epaulets that accentuate the shoulders play the same role. In the body, nian includes not only your shoulders but your torso, your chest, and rib cage. Psychologically, it is solidity, feeling solidly grounded in goodness. Grounded in the earth, so Nian is connected with bravery and the gallantry of human beings. In that sense, it is an enlightened version of friendship, being courageous and helpful to others. Finally, there is Lu, which literally means water being. It is the realm of oceans and rivers and great lakes, the realm of water and wetness. Lu has the quality of a liquid jewel. So wetness is connected here with richness. Psychologically, the experience of Lu is like jumping into a gold lake. Lu is also freshness, but it is not quite the same as the freshness of the glacier mountains of La. Here, freshness is like sunlight reflecting in a deep pool of water, showing the liquid, jewel-like quality of the water. In your body, Lu is your legs and feet, everything below your waist. La, Nian, and Lu are also related to the seasons. Winter is La. It is the loftiest season of all. In the winter, you feel as if you were upstairs above the clouds. It is cold and crisp, as if you were flying in the sky. Then there is spring, which is coming down from heaven and beginning to contact earth. Spring is a transition from La to Nian. Then there is summer, which is the fully developed level of Nian. When things are green in full bloom, and then summer develops into autumn, which is related with Lu, because fruition takes place, the final development. The fruit and harvest of the autumn are the fruition of Lu. In the rhythm of the four seasons, La, Nian, and Lu interact with one another in a developmental process. This applies to many other situations. The interaction of La, Nian, and Lu. Is like snow melting on a mountain. The sun warms the peaks of the mountain, and the glaciers and snow begin to melt. This is La. Then the water runs down the mountainside to form streams and rivers, which is Nian. Finally, the rivers converge in the ocean, which is Lu, the fruition. The interaction of La, Nian, and Lu also can be seen in human interactions and behavior. For example, money is law principle. Establishing a bank account and depositing your money in the bank is nian, and drawing money out of the bank to pay your bills or to buy something is lu. Or another example is as simple as having a drink of water. You can't drink water out of an empty glass, 
So first you pour water into the glass, which is the place of law. Then you pick up the glass in your hands, which is nian, and finally you drink, which is the place of lu. Law, nian, and lu play a role in every situation in life. Every object you handle is connected with one of those three places. For example, in terms of clothing, the hat is in the place of law. The shoes are in the place of lu, and shirts, dresses, and trousers are in the place of nian. If you mix up those principles, then you instinctively know that something is wrong. For instance, if the sun is beating on your head, you don't put your shoes on your head as a visor to protect you from the sun. And on the other hand, you don't walk on your eyeglasses. You don't stuff your shoes with your ties, and for that matter, you shouldn't put your feet on the table because it is mixing up lu and nian. Personal articles that belong to the law realm. Include hats, glasses, earrings, toothbrushes, and hairbrushes. Articles belonging to the realm of nian are rings, belts, ties, shirts, and blouses, cufflinks, bracelets, and watches. Articles belonging to the place of lu include shoes and socks and underwear. I'm afraid it is as literal as that. La nian and lu are quite straightforward and very ordinary. Observing the order of law, nian, and lu is what makes human beings civilized, and therefore we might refer to them as the ultimate protocol. By following the order of law, nian, and lu, your life can be harmonized with the order of the phenomenal world. Some people would like to ignore such basic societal norms. They say, "So what if I put my shoes on my head?" But everybody knows that something is not quite right in doing that, although nobody knows exactly why. People have an instinct that prompts them to have a place for each article of clothing or household belonging. Those norms actually make sense. Your bedroom and your entire house are much tidier if you put certain belongings in certain places. From that, you develop rhythm and order in your experience. You do not throw your garments on the floor. You do not put your slippers under your pillow, and you do not use your hairbrush to polish your shoes. Ignoring the order of La Nian and Lu is very destructive. If instead of winter, summer followed autumn, and if instead of autumn, spring followed summer, the whole order of cosmic principles would be violated. In that case, crops wouldn't grow, animals wouldn't reproduce, and we would have devastating droughts and floods. When the order of La Nian and Lu is violated in society, it is like disrupting the order of the seasons. It weakens society and causes confusion. Sometimes you see the violation of law, nian, and lu reflected in the actions of political leaders. The president of the United States putting his feet on the desk of the Oval Office, or the famous incident of Russian Premier Khrushchev pounding his shoe on the United Nations podium. It is not that those actions in themselves are the real problem. Incorporating the law of law, nian, and lu is more than just having good manners. What is truly problematic is the attitude that violates the sacredness of life. Thinking that the way to make a forceful statement is to turn the world topsy turvy by ignoring its basic norms, you lose your trust in the phenomenal world, and at the same time you become an untrustworthy person yourself, someone who thinks that wheeling and dealing his way through life is the road to success. 
Maybe there is some temporary victory in that kind of approach, but ultimately you are throwing yourself into the gutter of the world. So respecting the order of La, Nian, and Lu is very important. This does not mean just paying lip service to those principles by having an orderly household with everything in its place. You begin by appreciating your world, by taking a fresh look at the universe, which we have discussed over and over. Then, out of that, you feel the presence of La, Nian, and Lu in your body, your entire being. You feel the wakefulness and vision of La, the solidity and gentleness of Nian, and the rich possibilities of treading the earth, which are Lu principle. Then, from that discovery of basic decorum, you begin to understand how to join La, Nian, and Lu principles together by giving yourself to others, by serving your world. Joining La, Nian, and Lu is exemplified in the act of bowing, which in many Eastern cultures is a traditional greeting. For the Shambhala warrior, the bow is a symbol of surrendering to others, serving them. We are not talking here just about the literal act of bowing, but about the warrior's whole attitude towards his or her life, which is one of selfless service. When, as a warrior, you make a bow, you begin by establishing your head and shoulders, uplifting your posture. You don't just roar in and bow, but first you hold yourself erect. This connects you with the realm of law and with raising wind horse. It is as if you had glaciers on your head, as if you were Mount Everest. Then from that cutting and fresh glacier-mountain realm of law, you begin to bend down by lowering your head and hunching slightly. You give to your shoulders from your head. This is making friends with Nian. You acknowledge the breadth and vastness of your shoulders. Then finally, you complete your bow. You submit to the realm of Lu. You completely surrender. Your entire three systems of La, Nian, and Lu are offered as you bend down. Bowing is giving away basic goodness and wind horse to others. So in bowing, you are surrendering potential, power, and magic, and you do that with real, proper feeling. It is a threefold process. Hold, feel, and give. So first you have to hold, otherwise you don't make any statement. If you bow to someone by just flopping down, that is a very gullible bow. It does not have any heart to it. The witnesser of that bow, the person you bow to, will regard you as an untrustworthy person. The idea is that the magic of the bow, the power of the bow, actually confirms both people. When you bow to your friend or to a good, trustworthy person who also possesses that power, then you are sharing something together. If you bow to the setting sun, if you bow to Mickey Mouse, you are degrading yourself. The warrior never does that. So the bow is based on acknowledging someone else's worth, his or her law, Nian and Lu, existing in front of you. And, as a mark of respect, you do not rise from your bow until the other person rises. The bow represents a complementary exchange of energy, as well as being a mark of decency, loyalty, and surrender. It is both an example and an analogy of how to join La, Nian, and Lu together. Basically, the point is to serve the world. Tools which help us to shape our world are also regarded as joining La, Nian, and Lu, and should be given special respect. The same is true for human beings who help to shape the lives of others by serving them. 
So a teacher is highly respected because he or she is joining Lan Yan and Lu in the students. Ideally, politicians and public servants also have this role. The role of the warrior altogether is to join La Nian and Lu in order to help his or her fellow human beings. Living in accordance with natural hierarchy is not a matter of following a series of rigid rules or structuring your days with lifeless commandments or codes of conduct. The world has order and power and richness that can teach you how to conduct your life artfully with kindness to others and care for yourself. However. Just studying the principles of La Nian and Lu is not enough. The discovery of natural hierarchy has to be a personal experience. Magic is something you must experience for yourself. Then you will never be tempted to put your hat on the floor, but more importantly, you will never be tempted to cheat your neighbors or your friends. You will be inspired to serve your world, to surrender yourself completely. Chapter Eighteen: How to Rule. The warrior's journey of discovering the natural hierarchy of reality and his place in that world is both exalted and very simple. It is simple because it is so immediate and touching. It is touching your origin, your place in this world, the place you came from, and the place you belong. It is as if you were taking a long walk through the woods at twilight. You hear the sounds of birds and catch a glimpse of the fading light in the sky. You see a crescent moon and clusters of stars. You appreciate the freshness of the greenery and the beauty of wildflowers. In the distance, dogs are barking, children are crying, and occasionally you hear the sound of a car or truck making its journey on the highway. As the wind begins to blow on your cheeks. You smell the freshness of the woodlands, and perhaps you startle an occasional rabbit or bird as you pass them by. As twilight goes on, memories of your husband, your wife, your children, your grandparents, your world come back to you. You remember your first schoolroom, where you learned to spell and read and write. You remember tracing the letters I and O, M and A. You are walking in the forest of the Dralas. But still, there is a feeling that this woodland is surrounded by other living human beings. Yet, when you listen, you hear only the sound of your own footsteps, right, left, right, left, a crackle when you step on a dry twig. When you walk into this world of reality, the greater or cosmic world, you will find the way to rule your world. But at the same time, you will also find a deep sense of aloneness. It is possible that this world could become a palace or a kingdom to you, but as its king or queen, you will be a monarch with a broken heart. It is not a bad thing to be, by any means. In fact, it is the way to be a decent human being, and beyond that, a glorious human being who can help others. This kind of aloneness is painful, but at the same time, it is beautiful and real. Out of such painful sadness, a longing and a willingness to work with others will come naturally. You realize that you are unique. You see that there is something good about being you as yourself. Because you care for yourself, you begin to care for others who have nurtured your existence or have made their own journey of warriorship, paving the way for you to travel this path. 
Therefore, you feel dedication and devotion to the lineage of warriors, brave people, whoever they have been, who have made this same journey. And at the same time, you begin to care for all those who have yet to take this path. Because you have seen that it is possible for you, you realize that you can help others to do the same. You begin to see that there are seasons in your life in the same way as there are seasons in nature. There are times to cultivate and create when you nurture your world and give birth to new ideas and ventures. There are times of flourishing and abundance when life feels in full bloom, energized and expanding. And there are times of fruition when things come to an end. They have reached their climax and must be harvested before they begin to fade. And finally, of course, there are times that are cold and cutting and empty, times when the spring of new beginnings seems like a distant dream. Those rhythms in life are natural events. They weave into one another as day follows night, bringing not messages of hope and fear, but messages of how things are. If you realize that each phase of your life is a natural occurrence, then you need not be swayed, pushed up and down by the changes in circumstance and mood that life brings. You find that you have an opportunity to be fully in the world at all times and to show yourself as a brave and proud individual in any circumstance. Normally, there appears to be a conflict between survival and celebration. Survival, taking care of your basic needs, is based on pragmatism, exertion, and often drudgery. Celebration, on the other hand, is often connected with extravagance and doing something beyond your means. The notion of ruling your world is that you can live in a dignified and disciplined way, without frivolity, and at the same time enjoy your life. You can combine survival and celebration. The kingdom that you are ruling is your own life. It is a householder's kingdom. Whether or not you have a husband or wife and children, still there is a structure and pattern to your daily life. Many people feel that the regularity of life is a constant imposition They would like to have a different life or a different menu every second at every meal. It is necessary to settle down somewhere and work at having a regular, disciplined life. The more discipline that occurs, however, the more joyous life can be. So the pattern of your life can be a joyous one, a celebration rather than obligation alone. That is what it means to rule the kingdom of your life. The notion of kingdom here is that your life is potentially wealthy and good. There is a great deal of misunderstanding about wealth. Generally, being wealthy means that you have lots of money. But the real meaning of wealth is knowing how to create a gold-like situation in your life. That is to say, you may have only $20 in your bank account, but you can still manifest richness in your world. Interestingly, If you are lost in the desert, without food and water, even if you have lots of gold in your pack, you can't eat it and you can't drink it. So you are still starved and parched. That is analogous to what happens to many people who have money. They have no idea how to eat it and how to drink it. Once I heard a story about a Native American tribal leader who struck oil on his property and became rich. He decided to buy 20 basins and bath taps at once as a sign of his wealth. People can spend thousands of dollars and still be dissatisfied and in tremendous pain. 
Even with all that supposed wealth, they may still be unable to enjoy a simple meal. True wealth does not come about automatically. It has to be cultivated. You have to earn it. Otherwise, even if you have lots of money, you will still be starved. So if you want to rule your world, please don't think that means you have to spend a great deal of money. Rather, true wealth comes from using manpower, individual power. If your suit has lots of lint, don't send it to the cleaners right away. Clean it yourself. That is much less expensive and also more dignified. You put your own energy and effort into caring for your world. The key to wealth, or the golden key, is appreciating that you can be poor, or I should say unmoneyed, and still feel good, because you have a sense of wealthiness in any case already. That is the wonderful key to richness and the first step in ruling, appreciating that wealth and richness come from being a basically decent human being. You do not have to be jealous of those who have more in an economic sense than you do. You can be rich even if you are poor. That twist is a very interesting one and very powerful in terms of how to deal with world problems. Too often the politics of this world are based on poverty. If people are poor, they want to take money or resources away from those who have more. And if people are wealthy in the sense of having money, then they want to hold on to what they have because they think that giving up some of their money will make them impoverished. With that mentality on both sides, it is difficult to imagine any fundamental change taking place. Or if it does take place, it is based on tremendous hatred and violence, because both sides are hanging on so tightly to what they think is important. Of course, if you're starving, then what you want is food. In fact, food is what you need. But the genuine desires of those who are in need can be ruthlessly manipulated. War based on grasping has happened over and over again in this world. People with money have been willing to sacrifice thousands of human lives to hold on to their wealth. And on the other side, people in need have been willing to massacre their fellows for a grain of rice, a hope for a penny in their pocket. Mahatma Gandhi asked the Indian people to embrace nonviolence and to renounce clinging to foreign ways, which they associated with wealth and prosperity. Since most Indians wore cloth that was British-made, he asked them to give up wearing British cloth and weave their own. This proclamation of self-sufficiency was one way, and a powerful one, of promoting dignity based not on material possessions, but on one's inherent state of being. But at the same time, with every respect for Gandhi's vision of non-aggression, which he called Satyagraha, or seizing the truth. We should not confuse his message with extreme asceticism. In order to find one's inherent wealth, it is not necessary to renounce all material possessions and worldly pursuits. If a society is to have a sense of command and being ruled, then someone has to wear the three-piece suit at the negotiating tables, someone has to wear a uniform to keep the peace. The basic message of the Shambhala teachings is that the best of human life can be realized under ordinary circumstances. That is the basic wisdom of Shambhala, that in this world, as it is, we can find a good and meaningful human life that will also serve others. That is our true richness. At a time when the world faces the threat of nuclear destruction 
and the reality of mass starvation and poverty. Ruling our lives means committing ourselves to live in this world as ordinary but fully human beings. The image of the warrior in the world is indeed precisely this. In a practical sense, how can we bring the sense of richness and ruling into our ordinary lives? When the warrior has achieved a certain mentality, having understood the basic principles of dignity and gentleness thoroughly, as well as having an appreciation for the Drala principle and the principles of La, Nian, and Lu, then he or she should reflect on the general sense of wealth or richness in his or her life. The basic practice of richness is learning to project the goodness that exists in your being so that a sense of goodness shines out. That goodness can be reflected in the way your hair is combed, the way your suit fits, the way your living room looks, in whatever there is in your immediate world. Then it is possible to go further and experience greater richness by developing what are called the seven riches of the universal monarch. These are very ancient categories first used in India to describe the qualities of a ruler. In this case, we are talking about developing these qualities individually, personally. The first richness of the ruler is to have a queen. The queen, or we could say wife or husband, if you like, represents the principle of decency in your household. When you live with someone with whom you can share your life, both your wisdom and your negativities, and encourages you to open up your personality. You don't bottle things up. However, a Shambhala person does not have to be married. There is always room for bachelors. Bachelors are friends to themselves as well as having a circle of friends. The basic principle is to develop decency and reasonability in your relationships. The second richness of the universal monarch is the minister. The principle of the minister is having a counselor. You have your spouse, who promotes your decency, and then you have friends who provide counsel and advice. It is said that the ministers should be inscrutable. The sense of inscrutability here is not that your friends are devious or difficult to figure out, but that they do not have a project or goal in mind that clouds their friendship with you. Their advice or help is open-ended. The third richness is the general, who represents fearlessness and protection. The general is also a friend, a friend who is fearless because he or she has no resistance to protecting you and helping you out, doing whatever is needed in a situation. The general is a friend who will actually care for you, as opposed to one who provides counsel. The fourth richness is the steed or horse. The steed represents industriousness, working hard and exerting yourself in situations. You don't get trapped in laziness, but you constantly go forward and work with situations in your life. The fifth richness is the elephant, which represents steadiness. You are not swayed by the winds of deception or confusion. You are steady like an elephant. At the same time, an elephant is not rooted like a tree trunk. It walks and moves, so you can walk and move forward with steadiness as though riding an elephant. The sixth richness of the ruler is the wish-granting jewel, which is connected with generosity. You don't just hold on to the richness that you achieve by applying the previous principles, but you let go and give by being hospitable, open, and humorous. 
Number seven is the wheel. Traditionally, the ruler of the entire universe holds a gold wheel, while the monarch who rules this earth alone receives an iron wheel. The rulers of Shambhala are said to have held the iron wheel because they ruled on this earth. On a personal level, the wheel represents command over your world. You take your seat properly and fully in your life, so that all of the previous principles can work together to promote richness and dignity in your life. By applying these seven principles of richness, you can actually handle your family life properly. You have a wife or husband, which promotes decency. You have close friends who are your advisors, and you have your guardians or companions who are fearless in loving you. Then you have exertion in your journey, in your work, which is represented by the horse. You ride on your energy all the time. You never give up on any of the problems in your life. But at the same time, you have to be earthy, steady, like an elephant. Then, having all those, you don't just feel self-satisfied, but you become generous to others, like the wish-granting gem. Because of that, you rule your household completely. You hold the wheel of command. That is the vision of how to run your household in an enlightened fashion. Having done that, you feel that your life is established properly and fully. You feel that a golden rain is continuously descending. It feels solid, simple, and straightforward. Then you also have a feeling of gentleness and openness, as though an exquisite flower has bloomed auspiciously in your life. In whatever action you perform, whether accepting or rejecting, you begin to open yourself to the treasury of Shambhala wisdom. The point is that when there is harmony, there is also fundamental wealth. Although at that particular point you might be penniless, there's no problem. You are suddenly, eternally rich. If you want to solve the world's problems, you have to put your own household, your own individual life, in order first. That is somewhat of a paradox. People have a genuine desire to go beyond their individual cramped lives to benefit the world. But if you do not start at home, then you have no hope of helping the world. So the first step in learning how to rule is learning to rule your household, your immediate world. There is no doubt that if you do so, then the next step will come naturally. If you fail to do so, then your contribution to this world will be further chaos.